Okay. Well, this week I am thinking about the burden of proof and it is a burden. Um, and as it is Mother's Day, I'm also thinking about how the burden of proof, particularly in the world, falls upon women, both historically and in modern life. Especially if you're a woman, if you're a woman pastor, the burden is proof of proof is very heavy. You got to really prove yourself, um, and particularly in religious circles. And I mostly feel like I've been having to prove myself my whole life. And of course, that is not just women. That's my experience. But it's everybody in our culture. We have to prove our worth and our value and our right to take up space and our right to breathe air and our right to be in our bodies freely just as they are and we have to prove our sexuality and our qualifications and our relationships and this like pressure to prove ourselves is a huge source of guilt and shame on people it's a source of a feeling of imposter syndrome and fear of failure and just stress and i've come to the conclusion at this point in my life and I'm just done, I'm just done playing the proving game. Maybe you resonate with that. So from my perspective, it looks to me like Jesus himself has little interest in proving himself. And I can prove that, I'm going to. And ironically, very ironically this morning, I'm gonna share with you lots of scriptures, proof texts, if you will, about how Jesus has nothing to prove. Because we can see if we're looking at in Jesus culture, as in ours, there's this constant pressure for us to be proven ourselves. And Jesus is aware of this game and he's not having it. So this idea has been on my mind here lately. And um, a few weeks ago, I wrote an article for the online journal Progressing Spirit. And I titled it, obviously, I titled it Easter People, because that's the that's our theme. That's what I've been thinking about. That's been like the theme of all my litanies here lately. And in this article, I described some characteristics of people that I think of as Easter people, like the person that I want to be, that I'm working to be, and the seeds that I'm hoping to keep on um, sowing here at peace over this next little while. And I wrote things like, um, Easter people learn to observe our egos and to laugh at their antics. Easter people give preference to the least privileged out of our steadfast faith in, in abundance. Easter people understand that each human is traveling their path to the best of their ability. Therefore, we have no need of cultish or controlling cultures. Easter people know that there's nothing to prove and nothing to defend. And that's the one that's kept on percolating for me here over the last few weeks. Nothing to prove, nothing to defend. So this is a saying that I've heard quite a few spiritual teachers use, teachers from a variety of traditions. Sometimes they say some other version of it, like nothing to protect, nothing to defend, nothing to protect, nothing to prove, or something similar. And it's kind of, it's kind of groundbreaking. So I was raised to wage culture wars. The tradition that raised me was one that taught me that I needed to stand up for my beliefs. I needed to fight against enemies, 
we sang onward Christian soldiers and I needed to be on the defensive and on guard, even against my own self, right? Like, like I'm the enemy and I was taught to reject my own heart. I was taught to ignore my intuition, to distrust my own inner knowing. I was taught that at any moment I needed to be ready to defend Jesus because Jesus always needs defending. I need to prove Jesus' realness and I need to prove his story to unbelievers. And there's just all these, always this sense of being against the culture of judging it and of judging other people as good or evil and of this like necessity of resisting any influences that weren't explicitly sanctioned by the tradition, right? Maybe you resonate with that. Very dualistic, very constantly defensive, and quite frankly, very exhausting. Now, as you might guess, I have deliberately and consciously let a lot of that go. I think that nothing to prove and nothing to defend is kind of the epitome of what the prophet Isaiah described in his very iconic description of what's now known as the peaceable kingdom passage in Isaiah chapter 11, which I would like to read a bit for you now. This is verses, this is Isaiah 11, verses six through nine. It says, it says, the wolf will live with the lamb, the leopard will lie down with the goat, the calf and the lion and the yearling together and a little child will lead them. The cow will feed with the bear, their young will lie down together and the lion will eat straw like the ox. The infant will play near the cobra's den and the young child will put its hand into the viper's nest. They, they will neither harm nor destroy on all my holy mountain for the earth will be filled with the knowledge of the Lord as the waters cover the sea. We hear the voice of God in the reading of this sacred text. Thanks be to God. So this, um, this idea of the peaceable kingdom, peaceable kingdom as we like to call it, also appears in chapter two of Isaiah, where Isaiah famously writes that, um, they shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation, neither shall they learn war anymore. So it's this beautiful me metaphor of uh, tools of war being turned to tools of agriculture and tools of production and nourishment of, of the world. And I would like for us, for these next few minutes, to hold these words from Isaiah alongside the lectionary gospel text from John 15 that Christopher just read for us just now, and particularly this sentence, the sentence that says, I have said these things to you so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. I just want us to hold those in our mind together for a while. So we get from these, we get this picture of the way God intends the world to be, at least as Isaiah imagines it. There's no more struggle and strife. There's nothing to argue. There's nothing to prove. There's nothing to kill one another over because the whole earth is filled with the knowledge of divine oneness. Now I've spoken to y'all before about centered set versus bounded set theory. And I think it's just worth mentioning again in the context of this sermon. So it's this idea of how organizations run. <clears throat> so a bounded set is one in which the boundaries are clearly delineated and you're either in 
the sect or you're out. And that usually depends on, at least in religious circles, it usually depends on like what lip service you give to a particular ideology or theology. And a centered set, by contrast, is one in which people are working towards a common goal because of the beauty and magnetism of that shared goal or work. So in this context, there's no in or out. There's only what are we working on together? And here at Peace, we do try to live more in the centered set camp because we believe in the beauty and magnetism of the work that Christ began and invites us to continue because Christ's imagination for the world, which was informed by the writings of Isaiah as part of his Hebrew heritage, is so winsome and so wonderful, and we want to see it come to pass. The day when all the weapons are turned into gardening tools is our shared dream around here, and we are committed to seeing it come to pass little by little. And so we, we want to live inside this bright light that draws the weary ones, the ones of us exhausted from fighting culture wars and from defending the indefensible like moths to a flame. And the ethos and the ethic of Christ frees us to stop to disengage from feudal arguments and instead to use the tools, right? Which were once weapons, but which we've repurposed to till the good soil that we've been given. And instead of destroying, we build the kingdom of heaven on earth. And instead of killing, we grow a harvest of abundance to feed the world. Amen. Okay. So recently, I've found myself in several situations in which I have been bombarded by what I consider to be bad theology. <laughs> like, I know this theology. I used to believe it too. I was raised in it. And now I judge it to be rotten fruit. Okay. I make a judgment about this. It's me. I make it the judgment. And this happened to me the other day when I was on a plane. I was sitting next to a guy who was reading a book that I don't like and that I don't agree with. <laughs> one of those books that's it's like supposed to teach Christians how to stand up for their beliefs in the midst of a quote-unquote hostile culture and it's basically you know it's it's a straight white man telling us how he thinks that racism and sexism and Marxism and Darwinism and socialism and homosexuality etc should be solved now <clears throat> I've had a lot of religious trauma and I know in my bones how harmful bad theology is it's harmful to everyone involved. And the temptation for me, both by nature and by nurture, is to pull myself immediately into this posture of resistance of like, I'm defensive and I'm ready to do battle and I, I'm not gonna let that stand and I'm not gonna let that in. And instead, in this moment, a new thing happened for me. I'm on this plane, I take a deep breath inside my mask, and I said to myself, nothing to prove and nothing to defend. And I said a little prayer that went something like, and this guy was sitting to, uh, on my right hand, that this prayer was like, dude, the Lord is your shepherd. Surely goodness and mercy will follow you all the days of your life. Amen. And then I went back to reading my novel. Now, <clears throat> some of you might think that I did the wrong thing, and I very well may have. 
Some of you might think that I should have called this guy out on his BS theology and told him what's what and defended my position while going on the offensive against this guy and his terrible book. But for a variety of reasons, ranging from, I'm an introvert and I don't talk to strangers if I can help it, to, well, if he's reading this book, he's not gonna listen to a woman anyway, to, and why should I spend my precious energy educating this guy for free? you know, reasons, I did what I did. But the revolutionary part for me in that moment was what occurred internally for me. And it felt, to be honest, it felt kind of new and fresh and really good. To just, to just look at this guy who's absolutely beloved by mama God. He is her little baby, just like I am and not get sucked into mental and emotional strife that drains my energy away and makes me in the end less effective in my work. I mean, good Lord, Jesus went to a whole death non-defensively. Surely I can get through one plane ride next to a theology bro non-defensively. Like surely I can go without turning my plowshare back into a sword on UA flight 3443. It's not my business. And when I let go of what isn't my business, I'm liberated to get really clear on what is my business and do that. So here's how I knew that what I was doing in that moment was right for me in that particular moment. Here's how I knew. My joy was complete. Jesus said in the scripture reading, abide in love. I have told you this so that your joy may be complete. And I knew I was on the right track because I felt that joy. I felt you guys, I felt the joy of minding my own business, the joy of trusting the spirit, both for myself and for the beloved man next to me, the joy of letting him and me off the hook mercifully. The joy of blessing another person, the joy of knowing that Jesus doesn't need me to prove him, and the joy of basking in this great light of Christ, knowing that Christ is drawing all things and all people into himself. That's what the scripture says. And I am honestly so thankful to have gotten here. Like, I don't have to manage your mind. I only had to manage my mind. I don't have to wage war. I have to make room for mercy to bloom. I don't have to feed the beast. Y'all, the absolute gaping maw of culture wars that wants to suck me in for the rest of my born days. If we quit feeding our energy to this culture war machine, it will starve. My job is to let my light shine and to love my neighbor. And yes, at times my job is to speak out loudly about injustice and to use whatever influence and energy that I have to draw some attention instead to the way of love, which is the way of Christ. Yeah. Listen. Minding your own business is not for lazy people. You know why people don't mind their own business? Here's what I think. I think it's because people don't want to see what's really inside of themselves. 
We don't want to understand that what that everything that we're fighting against is really a mirror showing us what's inside our own hearts. People don't mind their own business because they don't want to do the inner work. We don't want to reconcile with the fact that what we're actually fighting against and rejecting is ourselves. Whereas Jesus is in the business of bringing all things in, into the centered set, into himself. And the scripture says that. The scripture says that says that both in Ephesians and Colossians. You can look it up. Now, speaking of looking it up, I've spent the majority of my life, uh, yeah, the majority, almost 30 years, looking at the life of Christ as per portrayed in the scriptures. And I've, sent an, I've spent another good chunk of my life actively trying to sit in the presence of Christ in the spiritual sense. And I'm here to tell you, I'm here to tell you that this guy is beautiful. We don't shut up about him for good reason. And I want to call your attention to just a few moments. Okay. Here's one. In, there, there's one moment in John five, you may recall it where Jesus states his business. The question is happening of where does Jesus get the authority to be brazenly healing people on the Sabbath? And here's what Jesus says. This is the inclusive translation. He says, the truth of the matter is the only begotten can do nothing alone, but can only follow Abba God's example for whatever Abba does. The only begotten does and does in the same way for Abba God loves the only begotten and teaches the only begotten by example. Jesus is like, I know what my business is. It's whatever God puts in my path to do. In this case, healing this guy of a paralysis. Prove it, they say. Prove it. Well, the guy's walking, isn't he? How can I prove it? How else can I prove it? I can think of a few other in instances when Jesus says something sim similar. Remember when um, he's out in the desert and the devil says to him, prove it. If you're the son of God, throw yourself off this wall. And Jesus rolls his eyes. He just like, the eye roll isn't actually there, but it's in between the lines of the text, if you read really closely, you can just feel that. that Jesus does another similar thing in the company of Pilate, right before the crucifixion in, in, in Luke 23. Pilate says, are you the king of the Jews? Jesus is like, you said it, not me. Like, how am I going to prove that? What Jesus has done speaks for itself. And obviously any old joker is going to misinterpret it, no matter how clearly he says it, because we know that that's how people do, right? It doesn't matter how clearly you prove anything. Someone is going to willfully misinterpret it. We know that. There's another moment in uh, Matthew 16, when Jesus asks Peter, who do you say I am? And Peter says, with great conviction, you are the Christ the son of the living God. And Jesus says, blessed are you for this was not revealed to you by humans, but by God in heaven. You can't come to the understanding by human ways anyway. Jesus knew that the proving game was a thing, but Jesus trusted the spirit. He trusted Abba God to be present. He says in Luke 12, when, not if, when, they bring you before the synagogues, the rulers and the authorities. Do not worry about how you are to defend yourselves or what you are to say for the Holy Spirit will teach you at that very hour what you ought to say. 
Now, the irony about all these instances, the irony about this whole thing is that I could go on. I could keep on using various incidences in scripture to prove to you what I'm trying to say, which is that we have nothing to prove and neither does Jesus. He is not playing the proving game. He never coerces anyone with data. He never pressures people with proof texts. Like, can we start to see how the example of Christ frees us from having to fix people and correct them and control them and shame them. And instead we are freed. We are liberated to love unconditionally, to forgive everything, to do our inner work and to speak and live peace no matter what. Can we see how letting go of the need to prove ourselves to other people liberates us to abide in love, as Jesus says in John 15. One of my very favorite sayings of Jesus, and this is my last proof text, I promise. <laughs> Jesus says, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. Now, if we were to translate today in kind of non-ableist language, we, we might say, those who have the capacity to receive this message, let them receive it. I come back to that all the time. Like, does it imply that I have any control over who can receive the message and who can't? No. I have no control over anyone but myself. Whoever needs the message can receive it. Does it mean that everybody's going to understand me? No. It's a privilege to be understood. Now imagine, what if, what if we took this seriously? What if we followed Jesus right out of the proving game? What if when we find ourselves inside the false matrix that tells us we have to prove ourselves to other people, like, like prove that we're valid and worthy? What if we just said, those, to, those who have ears to hear, let them hear. What if instead of spending our time in fruit, futile, fruitless arguments with people who are determined not to hear, what if we tilled the good soil we've been given and we protected our joy and we practiced mercy? And what if instead of arguing with the overprivileged, we uplifted the vulnerable and downtrodden? What better use of our time and energy could we find than playing this game? The beauty of this paradigm is that the proof is always in the fruit. Jesus said there in John 15, we heard it. Jesus appointed us to go and bear fruit and that's our job. Now, what are, what's the fruit? Well, the fruits of the spirit are, I learned this in kindergarten, the fruits of the spirit are love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. All right, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Is your life bearing those fruits? Do you feel the complete joy that Jesus is talking about? The question is for you to ask yourself. You don't have to prove it to me. It's for you to let those fruits be your guide in your life, to let their presence or absence alert you to any changes that you might need to make. Yes, we support each other. Do we control each other? No, we do not. Easter people have nothing to prove. We only have our fruit or not. So my friends, be who you are. Be your full, glorious, incarnated self. Some people are going to get it and some people aren't. Some are going to believe you and some people aren't. And some are going to agree and some people aren't. And you have nothing to prove. You don't have to prove why you believe this or that or not. You don't have to change any, anybody's mind to where they think just like you. You don't have to indoctrinate anyone. You don't have to enforce homogeneity of thought. There's nothing to prove and nothing to defend. 
You are free to do your work here in this world, the work the Spirit puts in your path and gifts you to do. In other words, you are liberated to mind your own business and manage your own mind, to abide in love and bear good fruit. As Easter people, we know that we are perfect and beloved and adored just as we are, even as we are in the process of learning and growing and changing our whole lives long. We know that we don't have to defend ourselves any more than we have to defend God, which is impossible anyway. It would be like defending the wind. Impossible. We don't have to prove anything to anybody, but we should be regularly accessing our fruit. Assessing whether it's fresh or it's rotten. And that's what minding our own business is. It's regularly and honestly assessing the fruit of our lives. And that is our prayer this morning, which we invite you to pray with us now. And I'm going to throw it over to Jordan, who's going to lead us in our litany. Amen. Hi, 